our wedding day was kind of a conclusion of a rocky dating period, um, just for me, uh, trying to rope in this great gal who I was crazy about, and um, at the same time trying to probably put on a little bit of a facade of, um, of pretending to be a better guy than, than I really was. And so um, a little bit of a sense of relief of thinking to myself that um, this period of facade was over and now I could kind of let my guard down a little bit. The first night of our honeymoon, you know, my sweet wife, who's so gracious and, and says that she had a great time, uh, went to bed alone, you know, while I was up and, and drinking and gambling with strangers because, um, you know, I felt like that was an okay thing to do on the first night of your honeymoon. And, and really, the, the remainder of the honeymoon kind of started to put into place some of what it was going to be like for us for the first two and a half years as, um, you know, I, you know I, I would say it wasn't intentional, but as I systematically started kind of taking our marriage apart with, with my behavior and um, with just selfishness and, and my addiction and all of the things that just continued down this road of destruction that would end up kind of melting us down in the end. I spent a good chunk of that time, I would say probably the first 10 months to a year, just very, very unhappy, um, feeling like I kind of got tricked by him a little bit, that he wasn't really who he said he was. Yeah. Um, and also, I spent a long time trying to change him myself. As we trace, like, where I, we, where I went from becoming a problem drinker to becoming a complete full-blown alcoholic, was around the time where I feel like Jamie turned me completely over to God and God turned me completely over to myself. And from that point on, I really did my best all the time to just turn Rustin over to God every single day. And I just started praying fervently every day for a change in our marriage, for something big to happen that would just rock Rustin's world, that would finally wake him up and get me either a way out of this marriage or a way for this marriage to be what I knew God wanted it to be. Everything really took on a warp speed. I mean, it got bad fast. Mm -hmm. And and not knowing, but Jamie's prayers were being answered in the fact that, you know, she'd really prayed for whatever it took. And so as it got worse and worse and worse, um, you know, I got to the point where towards the end of my drinking, the very last night I drank um, had just been a big night and Jamie was out of town. When I got home from being out of town that weekend, I could tell that something was different, but I didn't really know what was going on. Um, and on Monday afternoon, Rustin and I sat down together and he told me everything that had happened that weekend. I ended up you know, cheating on Jamie and um, destroying our marriage and destroying um, really my life. And when he told me about um, his alcoholism and he told me about um, the infidelity that had happened that weekend, it was kind of this overwhelming peace that kind of filled through me because it felt like I, I really did feel like the Holy Spirit was saying, okay, here's everything you've asked me for. Do you trust me? And we knew we were in trouble. We knew we were in over our heads. And so we sat down with a really sweet couple and we just sat there and we poured out our hearts very much like what we're doing right now. And, um, and, and the husband looked across at us and he said, well, there's some really good news. Your marriage is over. And it was like, well, how is that good news? And he said, well, the good news is you didn't have a very good marriage to start with. But what the Lord's going to do is restore and rebuild. 
And so, you know, the thought for us was really like God cleared us down to the foundation, just leveled it all and just went, okay, let's do this my way now. The restoration and rebuilding process for us over the last 20 months has been wonderful, but also a ton of work mm -hmm. and um, a lot of uh, just pain and kind of watching the Lord rebuild our marriage for us little piece by little piece by little piece as we continue to pursue him and pursue our marriage um, it gets a little bit better and a little bit better all the time when people say well you know what did it and it's like well of the thousands of things that we've seen God do over the last 20 months um, you know the biggest thing was we just came to a point of complete brokenness and willingness and just letting the Lord in to do what he does best and, and letting him have complete reign to restore our marriage. One of the most important pieces of what made, made this happen for us in our marriage with what the Lord did is really that He did it. He had to do it. I couldn't do it. Yeah. I couldn't change Him. I couldn't change our marriage. I couldn't fix anything. Mm -hmm. And the harder I tried, the worse it got and the more miserable I became until I figured out that I had to get out of the way and really let the Lord do what He does. Nothing happened for us. And I think that that's a really important piece to understand because I think we just try so hard to fix it all ourselves. <clears throat> Rustin and Jamie attend our 1110 services and uh, I give such amazing thanks to God and such proud of them as individuals because, as you just heard, their marriage literally had burned to the ground. I mean, it, it was over. I, I've seen a lot of marriages come into my office that were in better shape than that that eventually ended up in divorce, and so have you. And they were in an extremely bad way. But as you just heard, and you're not going to hear much more of a powerful story in life than that, that God is in the habit of redeeming the years that the locusts have eaten. He really is. But it takes brokenness and it takes laying yourself out before him, which is exactly what Rustin and Jamie have done. And they're seeing the fruit of that now. Do you see that little baby at the end there? I mean, they are just, they are doing really well. A lot of work still ahead for them, but they're doing really well. And that's what we're here to talk about this morning in an extremely candid way. This idea of what happens when the marriage doesn't work out? What happens when your marriage goes south? I, uh, I, many of you have gotten on me because I don't always wear my wedding ring, and I'm wearing it today. Uh, if you ever see me not have my wedding ring, it has nothing to do with the state of Kim's and mine marriage. I love my wife deeply. I, both of us consider that we have a great marriage, and uh, I, I don't wear it because in 23 years, I didn't know gold could do this, but this gold has shrunk over the years. And um, I... I did not know that it was possible for gold to shrink, but it has. And, uh, and so in all seriousness, what I, I have a battle going on right now with myself in which I say I'm going to lose that 30 pounds, so why get my ring resized? Because if I lo lose the weight, it'll fit again. Man, maybe you can relate. I think I'm just going to have it resized. Anyways, but this morning I jammed it on and said, you know, we're talking about marriage. I'm going to make sure I wear that thing even if it turns my finger blue. All right, let's pray, because there's a lot of stuff going on here this morning. God, I thank you for your goodness and for your grace. I thank you that you truly are in the habit of redeeming 
life on so many levels, not just our souls for heaven, but Lord, also redeeming our marriages, our finances, our children, our jobs, even our worldview, God. You, you, you redeem everything about us when we submit absolutely and wholly to you. And so, God, we, we've done what we know to do here this morning in corporate worship. We have sung about your holiness. We've sung to you about your goodness and your grace. We've given testimony to your glory and your power working in and among us. And now, Lord, we want to talk about your word and teach from your word as to what you say to us when marriage doesn't work out. God, i got to believe that there are some of us here this morning, if not many of us, who either are or have been in dire straits in our marriages. And so, God, I pray that you might have a special word for us now and a word that might be encouraging and hope-filled. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the whole church says together, amen. amen. All right, I, I want to just establish something right off the bat here this morning that I think is really important for you and I to get under our belts, and I'm just going to say it, and that is that outside of losing a child, I believe that the most painful and difficult thing that a couple can go through in this world is to see their marital dreams dashed. Can we just all agree upon that? I've thought about that all week. I thought, I thought, what could be worse for a couple to go through, again, outside of losing a child, which would be absolutely traumatic, what more could a couple go through uh, than to see their marital dreams dash that would be more painful and difficult in this life? I mean, think about it. A beautiful wedding day, hopes and expectations running high, the culmination of childhood dreams and lifelong wishes, finally feeling like you have come home and arrived in that one relationship that you have longed for your entire life, only to see it coming crashing down in hurt, mistrust, betrayal, confusion, and loneliness. I've done over a hundred weddings since becoming a pastor over 20 years ago, and I can tell you that on those beautiful and hope-filled wedding days, nobody plans for a marital breakdown. Nobody prepares for a marital breakdown, and certainly nobody wants a marital breakdown. It's the last thing on anybody and everybody's minds. I mean, very few Christians today, in fact, I don't know of any, sit there on their wedding day planning the eventual demise of their marriage. In fact, it's the opposite. We have positive hope every wedding that we do that this is a lifelong, God-honoring, soul-reviving type of relationship that you're entering into. And so if and when it happens, it's disillusionment big time for everybody involved. In fact, it's more disillusioning, again, than anything a couple can go through outside of maybe losing a child. And I don't know if you've noticed or not, but the Christian church, you and I, have a very schizophrenic track record when it comes to responding to marital breakdown. I mean, on the one hand, we respond with faith, love, hope, encouragement, support, understanding, empathy, all mixed together with Jesus-like compassion and truth. I've seen the church rise up and like Jesus with the woman at the well combine truth with grace in ways that redefine winsome, that redefine compassion. I've seen this and I've been so proud of church people when they do that. But then almost in the same breath, we can also be so very judgmental, condemning, condescending, and harsh. I've seen this a lot as well. We take individuals who, as we've already established, have a deep sense of disillusionment and failure in their life, and we just grind the dirt into the wound with our criticism, our judgmentalism, and our more holier-than-thou mindset. And so we tend to be all over the map, caring and concerned in one breath, but then harsh and judgmental in the next. 
And yet this is a series on grace and the family. Did you catch that? We're talking about grace and the family. And so in keeping with the theme of this eight-week series that we are in right now, I want to talk to us in our time remaining about Jesus' ethic of grace and truth. And in so doing, I want to share with each of us three key things that God in the Bible has revealed to us that we can do when our marriages are in trouble, even, as we saw in our video, when they're in deep trouble. Three things that you can apply to your situation right now, or at the very least, to encourage and help someone else in their struggles. Three things I want to share with you, and I'm sure there's a lot more. This is just kind of a primer on what to do when the marriage goes south, a very practical primer, but at least three things the Bible says that we can do right out of the chute that just might start to revive a very dead and stale marriage. So look up here on the screen. Here's the first thing, and that is to reignite communication. Reignite communication. Folks, listen. Study after study, marriage expert after marriage expert, all confirm that the number one reason that marriages get into trouble is due to non-existent, faulty, or inadequate communication. It's true. In fact, check this out. In a recent study posted in the Journal of Marriage and the Family, a study done on the perceived and self-attested reasons that people eventually get divorced they found that in both the men and the women groups polled, the number one reason cited by themselves was, and I quote, communication problems. Over two-thirds of the women polled and just under two-thirds of the men polled all agreed that the number one problem that led to their marital dissolution was communication issues. Unhappiness and incompatibility was a distant second. Abuse and financial problems, an even more distant third. Sexual problems, a distant fourth. And infidelity, which everybody thinks of when we think of divorce, didn't even rank in the top six reasons for men or the top seven reasons for women. In fact, I found this actually funny, if not pathetic. More men actually said that their in-laws were a reason for divorce than it was because their wife had an affair. I mean, really, you can do with that what you want, but that actually surprised me, and I don't get surprised very often that people actually blame their wife's parents more than they did infidelity as a self-attested reason for divorce. No matter how you slice it, talk to any therapist, talk to any pastor who knows his or her stuff, the number one culprit for marital breakdown is communication problems. And so with this understanding, now let's look at one of the most famous Bible passages in all of the New Testament. It's James chapter 1, verse 19. If you brought a Bible, open up to James chapter 1, verse 19. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. Also, look up here on the screen. James 1, verse 19. Not a very complicated passage, extremely profound. It says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let, everyone, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And I would submit to you that contained in this simple but profound passage is the recipe to reigniting communication, namely to listen really well, speak in a timely and wise way, and do all of it with a really good attitude. You know, it's fascinating, folks. That word quick here, when it says to be quick to listen, in the original language that the New Testament was written in, means to be swift and fast. And it carries with it a connotation of doing whatever you're going to do sooner rather than later. 
so that you are so quick and swift that what you're doing, that it happens sooner than later. It has an urgency factor to it. And so combining this with the idea of listening, it's saying here in James chapter 1 that your knee-jerk response to any relational interaction, your first order of business should not be to say anything or to try to fix anything or even to try to do anything, but simply to listen and listen in the form of hearing, trying to truly understand what the other person is saying. Be quick to listen, God says. And then it says, did you catch this? Be slow to speak. That word slow here literally means what you think it means. It means to utter, uh, I'm sorry, that word speak here means what you think it means. It means to utter a sound. Isn't that interesting? The word speak simply means that you use your mouth to utter a sound and form words with it. We all get that. But that word slow is the hinge word. In the original language, I love this, it means to be dull, to be sluggish. Let that sink in a minute. Dull and sluggish. Two words that we usually associate with lazy, slothful, unmotivated people. God is saying here that after you have rushed into listening, then when it comes to your speaking into another person's life with words that are either going to greatly exasperate the problem or possibly help it, be very careful. Be slow. Be calculated. I love it. Be lazy, slothful, dull, and sluggish about it. God is is actually allowing you to be a couch potato here. Isn't that cool? He's actually saying if you're ever going to sit on the couch and do nothing, do it in communication. Be quick to listen. Be quick to understand. Be quick to soak in as much as you can from those around you, especially here in marriage with your spouse. And when it comes to speaking, be a couch potato. Be very slow and deliberate, calculated, even sluggish about it. Two keys to healthy communication here, folks. Don't ever tell me the Bible's not relevant. Learning to listen right out of the chute and listen in such a way to hear and then speak in a calculated, non-reactionary, unrushed, very thoughtful way. And so let me ask you, How many of you here this morning do this really well on a regular basis? Raise your hand if you are... Let me take off my glasses so I can see you. Raise your hand if you are a poster child for this kind of communication, especially in your marriage. (laughs) I can promise you, you guys are so smart. In the next two services, there's going to be some dumb husband that goes like this. It's going to happen, and I'm going to love it when it does. But you guys all get the picture. I mean, this is like Bible 101, and yet when it comes to you and I living it, being quick to listen, slow to speak, man, is it really hard. But let me ask you a more positive and life-giving question. How many of you, on the other hand, have ever had a person in your life, or maybe have one right now, that communicates to you in this listening to hear, careful to speak fashion how many people have you have around you that actually do this for you right now raise your hand a a few of you a few of you i I wish i could hear from you this morning i really do because i think there are some of us who are blessed in our lives to have people in our lives that really do apply james chapter 119 they're quick to listen they're slow to speak and for those of you who raised your hand here even for those of you who didn't but you do have people like this in your life I would simply ask you, do you like being around them? Do you feel loved and valued by them? Are you faithful to the friendship as a result? 
My guess is that it's yes to all of the above because that's how powerful communication can be. This simple idea of listening to hear and then speaking wise choice words that go to the heart. And some of you are saying right now, but Jamie, I don't know how to really listen very well. And I've never been taught how to speak in clear and life-giving ways. And my anger, James mentions anger there, is just so strong that it does seem to get in the way so often. And that's fair if you respond that way. I, I, I get it. Now, before we move on to the next point, two things, if this is you. First, then use the myriad of resources at your disposal to teach yourself how to listen and how to speak. But folks, listen to me. We are the most resource-saturated culture in, in the history of evangelicalism than any other culture before us. Did you know that? I mean, if this was like 17th century provincial France that we were living in, in which you'd probably be born and raised in the same town and would have a choice of maybe two churches to go to, one Protestant, one Catholic, and you were struggling in your marriage, you'd be in trouble, right? I mean, you wouldn't have books to read. You wouldn't have radio programs to listen to. Your church most likely wouldn't have marriage programs and marriage seminars. You wouldn't have a personal counselor to go to living back then. Think of all the resources that you and I have today at our disposal. It is awesome. It's awesome. And so in a sense, there's no excuse for any of us when it comes to this idea of saying, well, I really wasn't taught how to listen very well. Most of us weren't. Most of us did not have parents that modeled this very well for us. And so I get that. But there are resources out there like crazy. Even at your large church here, we have counseling ministry, pastoral counseling, entire marriage ministry that offers seminars all the time. We have a bookstore. Did you know that? And in our bookstore, we have books that help you learn how to listen better and how to speak better. In fact, even one of the books we're asking you to read during this particular series is called The Blessing by John Trent and Gary Smalley. And in that book, it actually talks about how to speak words of affirmation and blessing upon your children, your wife, and those that, that are around you. We chose it for that exact reason. And so in one sense, there's no excuse for any of us to say, I can't learn how to do this. And then secondly, I would also respond to the often heard comment that I don't know how to speak and listen very well to those that I love by saying this, and I say this very lovingly, but we need to own this, and that is to stop using lack of experience as an excuse and just do it. In other words, think about what you're saying when you say that you don't know how to listen and you don't know how to speak clearly to those you love. I mean, for a human being made in the image of God to say that he or she doesn't know how to discipline oneself to listen and hear, that doesn't know how to discipline oneself to speak cogent and clear words to those that they love, is kind of like a dog saying it doesn't know how to hunt. It really is. It's like a pig saying you need to teach me how to eat slop. The reality is, is that you don't need to be taught those things. Why? Because you're made in the image of Almighty God. He has hardwired you for relational activity to give and receive love. And listen to me, if James 1 really thought that we couldn't do what he's asking us to do, then why would he command us to do it? Amen? Why would he say, be quick to listen and so to speak, if he said, yeah, but 90% of you are going to try it and fail? That's not true. 90% of us are going to try it, and actually over time, if we have the guts to practice it, are going to succeed. I remember when I was in junior high, I was a really bad baseball player. I'm still a very bad baseball player. 
But I remember when I was in elementary school, when it was just t-ball and slow underhand pitch, I could hit the ball like two out of ten times and, uh, and at least have some success. And I'll never forget when I was in seventh grade, they went to fast pitch. And that was the last year I ever played baseball. And the reason was is because as that ball came whizzing by the plate at probably, what, in seventh grade, 20 miles an hour or something like that, but it was overhand fast pitch, I just couldn't hit the ball. I mean, I'd swing after swing after swing. And I'll never forget why we remember these things, I don't know. But I'll never forget one day, seventh grade, I'm sitting around this little community league, and the ball comes by the plate, and I probably just closed my eyes and swung, and I hit it. And the reason I remember that day is because the catcher, who was not a very nice kid, said, screamed out at the top of his voice, he said, hey, Rasmussen hit the ball, let's all applaud, you know, and they all started applauding that I hit the ball. And it was one of those humiliating moments, and I beat the tar out of the kid later on that day. <laughs> I didn't. But, uh, but, but I remember that day, like, oh, I hit the ball. Why did I tell you that story? Because the law of averages says that if you swing even at a fast pitch often enough, if you keep swinging, keep swinging, keep swinging, you're eventually going to do what? You're going to hit the ball. I think that's a great lesson for life. There are some of us who have used this excuse that we don't listen well, that we don't speak very well, and so we just do what? We shut down. We avoid. And the reality is God says, no, get back in the game. Step up to the plate and swing. And you're going to probably miss it the next ten times as you try that. But keep swinging, and eventually you're going to hit the ball. And eventually you're going to hit it again and again and again. We all know that old saying, practice makes perfect. Don't deceive yourself. You're hardwired for relational activity. God made you that way. And though you might be rusty at it, you can do it. And so I guess what I'm really saying here is that I don't really think that lack of resources or even lack of innate knowledge is what really prevents us from igniting the kind of communication that could save our marriages. But I do think there is something that does stop us from reigniting communication. And this brings us to the second thing that the Bible says to us when the marriage goes south. And this one will be a great challenge for some of us, but I'm telling you, if you can work through this, it will be life-giving. Look up here on the screen, and it's this. You need to resist pride. You need to resist pride. Folks, this is so key. One of the things that the Bible says over and over again, it's like a scratch CD, it just keeps repeating itself, is the warnings and dangers of pride when it comes to God and our most important relationships around us. So look at a string of relevant passages from the Proverbs on this exact subject. And I put it in the NIV here, the NIV translation, just because I like how this reads a little bit better. I don't do that very often, but you'll see why as I string these together, you'll get the point. Look at Proverbs 16, verse 18. It says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride leads to destruction and a fall. Then getting more specific, look at Proverbs 13, verse 10. It says, pride only breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Many of us have found this. Pride causes arguments and fights among us. We'll get more to that in just a minute here. But first, notice the result of all this pride as declared in Proverbs 29, verse 23, our third string together verse in Proverbs. It says, a man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. Focus on the little phrase, brings him low. The idea of being down in the dumps, not respected by others, alone in this world. On all levels, the proverb warns us, pride is going to leave you alone. It's going to leave you alienated and low when it comes to your relational base with God and others. 
And probably the most revealing summary then is Proverbs 18, verse 12, when it says this, Before his downfall, a man's heart is pride, but humility comes before honor. So it's kind of upstreaming the process for you and I here. It's saying that before a big downfall in your life, you can count on the fact that there was pride. That if you've had a downfall in your life, let's upstream it. Pride came first and led to that catastrophic downfall in your life. Folks, pride is the root of so many relational, spiritual, even emotional problems. And so do you see over and over again. The Bible warns us of the destructive power of this thing called pride. And just so that we are clear, here are two things that you need to realize about pride that I want you to take home today. First is that it lives in each and every one of us. Don't be in denial today. Pride is a universal human experience going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and it exists in every one of us. And though it's manifested in different ways and to varying degrees, I'll grant you that, make no mistake, it lives and rears its ugly head in even the most godly of us at times in our lives. And it's usually the most inopportune times because there's also an evil one out there tempting us toward pride each moment of each day. And so this leads us to the second thing I want you to know about pride, and that is that its very nature then is to cause us all to at all costs to protect self and never admit we are wrong or morally relationally culpable in a situation. That's what pride does. Pride basically screams to you, protect yourself, don't admit it, don't give any ground. You're better than you think. They are worse than you think. In other words, pride is that power and lure within you that is bent on elevating the self to unimaginable proportions and in so doing it literally convinces your mind and heart that you are a bit higher than you really are that you're a bit more right than you really are and to be sure let me ask you have you ever had a time in which you were in a conflict or argument with someone that you love say your spouse and even though you knew they were right see where i'm going with this even though you knew they were right that the facts were clearly on their side and that the scales were inarguably tipped in their favor, there was no way you were going to admit it and give them the satisfaction that they were right. Have you ever done that in your life? I think almost all of us have. I I mean, if I had a dime for every time I've done that, I'd be a rich man. What's going on there? Listen, it's pride. It's simply pride saying there's no way I'm going to give any ground here and admit that you are right and that I was wrong. It's full-blown pride. And so pride is that power of self-protection that would rather protect self than admit truth. And all of us know it, we experience it, and we even have experienced its tragic downfall in our lives when it comes to our relationships. You see, pride is when a husband won't admit that his bad day and his pressures at work caused him to snap unfairly at his wife or his children, and now they are distant from him as a result. Pride is what won't allow a wife to admit that her years of subtle manipulation and passive-aggressive behavior have contributed just as much to the marital breakdown as her husband's raging. Pride is when a husband won't make the first move to ask for forgiveness from his wife, even though the Bible says, as we'll see in a minute here, that you're the man in the family and that you need to make the first move when it comes to reconciliation and forgiveness. Pride is when a husband or wife won't admit their own part 
in the downfall of the financial ruin in their house or the downfall in the kids or what have you. Pride rears its ugly head in so many ways in our lives. And though pride is the fuel that many other areas of life run on, and that's what makes it so confusing, like in the business world, there's pride and everybody seems to work well with it. In the sports world, there's pride and everybody seems to work well with it. Listen, folks, if you drag pride into your relational base, it'll ruin it from day one. It'll ruin it from day one. I mean, sports, they're forgiving when it comes to pride up to a point. Business, they're forgiving when it comes to pride up to a certain point. But in your relational base, don't miss this, with God, your wife, your children, your friends, pride is seen much more quickly and its destructive power is that much more powerful right out of the chute. And so what do you do with pride? The Bible gives us one word and it's pride's antithesis. It's the opposite of pride. It's the killer of pride. And you all know the word. It's humility. It's humility. In other words, pride must be replaced with humility if you're ever going to get anywhere with it. Do you remember James 4, 6? It's a passage we looked at a few weeks ago. It says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, God says, there's no way you're going to hurdle pride. It's just too high. There's no way you're going to deal with pride on your own. It's just that powerful. The only way to deal with pride is to plow it out of the way with humility. This right estimation of yourself when you compare yourself to God. This humbling of your spirit that allows you to own stuff in your own life, even own the stuff that you have contributed to relational downfalls when it comes to your marriage. I had a very interesting and pleasantly surprising thing happen to me this week. I, on Wednesday, I was called here to the worship center behind in one of the offices back here to do a taping for our small group curriculum that we've been offering during this grace series and during the last one. And I, for this small group curriculum for this week, I was going to be interviewing four people on marital breakdown. The first one was Dr. Greg Crow, who's a respected psychologist in private practice, a Christian psychologist in this community. And then I was going to be interviewing at the same time Bill and Gail, a couple that have recently experienced marital breakdown in their lives and now are on the road to healing. And then fourthly would be a young gal by the name of Sharla, who is a young married woman whose parents divorced when she was younger and she was part of the mix to give us the perspective of a young woman who saw marital breakdown as somebody who was younger. And at one point when I was interviewing Bill and Gail, they shared their story, which is on our small group curriculum that the small groups will see tonight and, and this week. Bill and Gail had been married for more than two decades. They thought everything was fine. And eventually, a few Sundays, about six months ago or so, Gail hit a boiling point in their marriage in which Bill's communication style finally just created a meltdown in her life. In Bill's, Bill's own words, his communication style, he's kind of a refined guy, and I quote, he said, my communication style was loud and scattered with expletives. When he said that to me, I said, yeah, you yell and swear a lot. Why don't you just say it that way? But he said loud and scattered with expletives because he's a very refined gentleman. And he said on one particular Sunday, they were having an argument a few months back and Bill did his usual communication style. Well, right after church, that won't surprise some of you, but right after church, they had an argument and he was loud, scattered with expletives in his communication with her. And after two decades of marriage, Gail, Gail had had enough. She was absolutely at her wit's end. And she basically declared the marriage at that time over. It was just over. 
And her daughter, her teenage daughter, was actually there to witness it and witness her meltdown. And she said, out of the mouth of babes, her daughter said, well, Mom, before you declare this over, why don't you first seek some help from the church? And so on Sunday afternoon, she called the church here. And I don't know if you guys know this, but we have a pastor on call 24-7 here at the church. It's our emergency pastor. And that day, it was Joe Bubar. And so Joe, one of our worship guys, met with Gail, and he kind of talked her off the fence and, you know, and said, you know, just please, uh, you, you, you know, hang in there, and, and tomorrow we're going to get you to see our marriage pastor, you and Bill, and see what we can do with this. And so the next day, Gail and Bill met with our marriage pastor here, and as Bill told me the story, he just told me how he was so shocked and couldn't believe that this was such a big deal, and yada, 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 and how he owned it right away, and all this other stuff, and that that began the road to their marital healing. Now, folks, I've heard enough stories that when Bill got to that point in the interview telling me that about his marriage, I thought something just doesn't add up. Like, it just seemed like he owned that so quickly. You know, Daryl, what I'm saying is like, he owned that so quickly. I'm thinking, you know, what did I miss here? And so I started to probe a little bit in the interview and try to find out from him what really happened between the time Gail dropped the bomb on you and when you met with the marriage pastor. And I want you to look up here on the screen. I'm going to show you four minutes of our 24-minute interview in my discussion with Bill and Gail. I asked them if I could do this, and they said absolutely. And I want you to listen and look really close at Bill's response here, and then tell me if you don't see what I saw. Look up here on the screen. Bill, tell us, you know, a lot of men can relate to your journey. I mean, if I've heard once, I've heard a hundred times about a a man who thinks seemingly they're doing great in their marriage, everything's going wonderful. Dr. Crow could tell us the same thing. And they feel very blindsided by a wife all of a sudden who points out some significant dissatisfaction and even the, the ultimatum of, hey, I'm done, you know. And it really does throw a man. And, 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 and many men get very defensive at that point. They tend to shut down. They tend to get angry, which never helps the situation at all. In fact, it just exasperates it tremendously. I'm sure you had those feelings. I'm sure you had even maybe those initial responses. But how did you get over that hump? How, what eventually changed in you would allow you to receive what Gail was saying and, and to drop your pride and in a more non-defensive way address your own issues? Well, you know, Jamie, I'm not sure that I went through all those stages that you described because sure. Gail has always been the love of my life. Hmm. I mean, there's not been a, a time when I would think or say that, you know, she wasn't the love of my life. She's very loving, caring, supportive, and whether we have difficulties or not, she's very helpful. I mean, we went through a financial crisis, and she never, she was always very respectful and helpful. So having said that, when the love of my life told me that I wasn't the person that I should be, I owned it. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I owned it. Yeah. Well, I bought it. Okay. And I started my marriage ministry session the next day by thanking the minister who talked to Gail, who was Joe Bubar. He was the emergency physician, you know, emergency uh, minister on call, and say, thank you for permitting me the opportunity to try to save my marriage. Mm. So, uh, you know, I I saw, I, you know, I believe that I will be judged by God, and I do believe that I want to leave a godly legacy of children that are loving and respectful and God-honoring. So what I love about your story, Bill, and Greg, I love your comment on this, too, is that in one sense, that is refreshingly unique. Uh, you know, one of the things I, I talked about this week as we talk about marital breakdown is pride and, and how pride is just such a destroyer 
of marriages, especially when somebody's confronted with their own sin or, or mistakes or failures or what have you. And it just seems like God ran incredible interference in your soul, Bill, and allowed you to drop your pride very quickly before, as I mentioned, all those other things kind of crept in and gave you a very tender heart for your wife, Gail. And I'm telling you, just from somebody who's seen this, you know, way too many times, that was, that was really of the Lord, and that was a powerful thing because that enabled you then to own your own stuff, not get defensive, not point the finger back at Gail, but to say as the man of the house, okay, I'm going to be a man, and I'm going to own this. I'm going to own my contribution to this. And, uh, and, and I don't know, Greg, did you see that too? I mean, that probably saved him a year of therapy right there. Yeah, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, just taking that approach right off the bat. Yeah, yeah, it really would. It yeah, Bill really was would. very good about that. But the thing that I want to say about this is, after the first session, the finger got pointed back at me because I realized it wasn't just Bill. I was also preventing the marriage from communicating and being intimate. So it was also a wake-up call for me. Where have you been in all this? You've yep. been just taking the back seat. You should have been active, too, in trying to use the tools that's one of the things about the church. There's so many tools that we could have used that we ignored. Yeah. And now we see those tools and say, oh, gee, there's a program. We should go to that. Oh, let's, let's take advantage of that. There's a lot going on in that four-minute interplay there with Gail and Bill. But more than anything else, what I'd like you to notice is two things about their journey that I think illustrates what we're talking about here this morning. First, did you notice that Bill took the lead? He dropped his pride. He owned his own stuff, and I would submit to you that this is the breakthrough that God used to begin the healing process. I just need you to see that. I, to this day, I don't know that couple that well, so I don't know exactly what was going on in Bill's soul, but I, I meant it when I said that that was refreshingly unique, that, that Greg Crow and all of our pastors here spend about a year with most men just trying to get them through their pride just trying to get them to stop pointing the fingers at their wives, to get them to stop using that big word, but. I'll own my stuff, but. And the reality is Bill had no but in it at all. Bill was basically saying, okay, I own this. Did you catch that? It was endearing. This is the love of my life. I love that phrase. This is the love of my life. And if the love of my life tells me that there's something in my behavior that's causing her hurt and frustration, I'm all ears. And I'm going to humble myself and listen as the man of the family on what I can do to change so that she might be more happy and that our relationship might go on. Folks, that's humility. Even though Bill probably had the right to point back to Gail and say, hey, you're no peach to live with either, he didn't say that. He didn't say that at all. In fact, isn't it interesting? Gail admitted that after Bill owned his own stuff. But if he had led with that... Don't you think that would have muddied the waters? Don't you think that would have just exasperated the situation? Don't miss. He owned his own stuff as fully as he could. And I would submit to you that was the key to their eventual healing. And this naturally led then to a second thing that I hope you caught in their story. And I don't mean to be sexist with this, but we just need to see this because this is eminently biblical. And that is that it was Bill's ownership and humble leadership that then allowed Gail the freedom to open up and own her stuff as well. And I don't think that's just a coincidence. I have seen that happen way too many, in too many scenarios in which a man who takes the Ephesians 5 passage to love his wife as Christ loves the church, does that with humble and repentant leadership, and that when that happens, it paves the way now for the woman to start working on her issues as well. 
In fact, I think if most men would just hear that and hear this pride issue, I'm telling you, we'd have more marriages that would be more well on their way to healing than we could count. Men, listen to me. I'm not trying to pin all the blame on you. I'm really not because I know it takes two to tango. But the reality is, is that if your marriage is in trouble here today, I'm telling you, God in heaven looks to you and says, be a man. And don't be a man by trying to bark orders and say, do this and do that. Be a man by owning your own stuff. Be a man by being inside out. Be a man by listening to what your wife is saying to you. Again, learn from Bill, the love of my life, who now is unhappy, and is unhappy in part, maybe in great part, because of some dysfunction and sin inside of me. And the only thing keeping you from recognizing that is what? Your pride. That's the only thing blocking it. It's a humbling, if not humiliating thing to admit that you're the one that messed up. I mean, how do you think it felt for Rustin in our video, six months into a marriage, to have to admit addiction and the fact that he's completely messed up his new marriage? Do you think that was an easy thing for him to mention or to to own? Not at all. But he eventually had no choice. He was either going to lose his wife or drop his pride and own his stuff. The problem with some of us is it hasn't gotten that bad yet. But if you were ever to dare ask your wife, are you really happy with me? Are you content? Are you fulfilled? On that day that we got married 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, and you had all those dreams on what marriage would be, have any of them come true for you? See, some of us would be terrified to ask that question. But if we did, maybe we'd get an answer that would allow us to start to preemptively heal our marriage in our lives. Are you beginning to see, folks, marriages that get in trouble are very, very confusing and complex. And yet God is in the habit of untangling this mess. And he says, reignite communication, resist your pride. And lastly, and we're completely out of time, but I have to give you this one because it's so central. The last thing I would say to you is to rely fully on Jesus Christ. Rely fully on Jesus Christ. I'm in a men's small group every Thursday morning with some men that I love to journey with in which we hold each other accountable and share our lives as honestly as we can at this stage, which is very honest. And I shared my outline with them. And uh, Paul Wagner, who many of you know, teaches a Sunday school class here, and he's the professor of Old Testament at the seminary. When he saw that point, his basic response was rely on Jesus Christ. Well, duh, Jamie, everybody knows that one. That's not going to carry much of a punch. He didn't say it like that, but that's what he meant. And, uh, and, and, and so I, I thought about that, and I thought, well, what am I trying to say when I say rely on Jesus Christ? And I talked about it with Paul there. And when I told Paul what I really meant by this, he said, now you're getting somewhere. Folks, real quick, look at 1 Peter 3.15, and maybe you'll see the point. It says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Or as the famous NIV translation says it, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Set him apart as Lord. The two things I'm saying here with this closing point when it comes to your marriage is that you need to be absolutely dependent on Jesus Christ and you need to be dependent to the point that it makes a difference. If your dependency factor on Jesus Christ is not making a dent in your addictions, in your behavior, in your emotions, in the way that you function, then you might want to wonder if you're dependent enough. You might want to wonder if you've really surrendered to him in your life. Again, go back to our video with Rustin and Jamie. That's exactly what happened there. 
They both got to the point where they had to absolutely depend on Jesus Christ or nothing was going to happen. And yet the moment that they did, the moment they had what Andrew Murray calls that absolute surrender, is the moment that they saw God begin to resurrect their marriage. And that's how it works. I can't tell you how many people I've seen over the years that have come to the church with absolutely hopeless marriages, saying that it's over, there's no way it can work. And when we apply these three things, reigniting communication, resisting pride, and then praying like crazy in absolute dependence on Jesus, that we've seen God perform, well, borderline miracles when it comes to a marriage. It's a lot of work, and yet it does work at the end of the day.